Hello and welcome to the Behind the Artist podcast with Park West Gallery. I'm Gallery Director Morris Shapiro. If you'd like to view works of the artists I'm interviewing and learn more about them, please visit our podcast site with links to more content at parkwestgallery.com forward slash podcast. International art dealer Park West Gallery is proud to present our new podcast series, Behind the Artist. Each episode will be talking to popular contemporary artists to learn the stories and inspiration behind their extraordinary artwork and fascinating careers. One of the most intriguing interviews I've ever conducted. This episode of Behind the Artist features Michael Chaval. Settle in for this one because it unfolds beautifully and I'm sure you'll find it fascinating. Michael discusses his youth in the former Soviet Union and Communist Germany, his father's disciplinarian pressures upon him to excel as a painter, his formative years working as an illustrator, his first museum show at just 24 years of age, and his transition to the United States and the challenges he faced as an emerging artist in New York City of all places with almost no English. Michael also shares his comments on the distinction between surrealism and absurdism, why some people are frightened by his art, one person even fainted before one of his paintings, his take on the artists Dali, Magritte, Man Ray, and his greatest idol, Vermeer, among too many other topics to cover here. Better you should discover them for yourselves. This is Behind the Artist. It's no frills, just real and deep conversation. I'm Maura Shapiro, and I hope you enjoy this journey into the life and art of Michael Cheval. Michael Cheval, what a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure indeed. I'm a huge fan of your work. I know that it's amazing combination of incredible skill, just old masterly kind of technique, which has obviously taken you a long time to develop and you really mastered it, really dialed it in. And then your your extraordinary imagination and creativity. And it's intriguing to me uh, your past and how much your past has contributed to the artist that you are today. Uh, all the way back to your childhood. You were born in a very small village in southern Russia, right, in the Soviet system. And uh, tell us about your very early beginnings, what your life was like as a child. And I know you came from a sort of artistic family as well. Yeah, I was born in a very, very small town, which on the year I was born became a town before it called a railroad station. Mm, this is 1966, right? 66, yeah. yes. Uh, actually, the that place organized... Uh, as a living space in, uh, I believe, 1895 or something like that, when uh, people built the railroad. And uh, it was uh, the uh, old Kazakhs areas, uh, Don Kazakhs, and uh, there was a, there were kind of villages around, a lot of villages around. It's an old ancient area where people lived centuries with the old and very strong uh, traditions. So there was a lot, just the villages and uh, not uh, big cultural centers around. The environment in, the, in this town was very poor. So uh, I was born in a small house with uh, probably 
two rooms, <laughs> and there was a we uh, we called it summer kitchen. <laughs> when in in the summer people move their stuff and uh, leave there to create a more space for living. So when I was born, I lived in uh, this summer house because I was born in May and the whole summer uh, my mom and dad lived in, the, in this uh, summer house. So, but I <laughs> uh, still remember that uh, the garden and uh, chickens around uh, all, all my childhood and uh, um, uh, I don't know if if it's important to mention the uh, the toilet was in the garden. <laughs> Actually, you know this one with a hole. Right, right. So uh, I think it's fair to say it was primitive. Your yes, primitive yes, apartment. but but for uh, for many many people in in Russia, it's still active, uh-huh. and uh, to me was absolutely normal. Mm-hmm. Many things right. uh, what we had there, and. My family was uh, very creative, very artistic. Almost everyone in the family did something in art. Singing, playing, drawing, sculpting. It's hard to believe that in a, uh, such a small area, far, far away from, from the center, mm-hmm. from cultural uh, centers, people lived with their own cultural life. and. Uh, I believe it was very uh, rich life. Mm-hmm. People, you, you people entertained themselves, <laughs> themselves yeah. very, very much. I heard you talk too about the trains. You know, the trains that have been an impact on you. Yeah, actually, the the whole life in the uh, in this town was all around the train because it's a it's a big um, how does it call vein of uh, railroad going from uh, uh, north to the south and from the east to the south. The trains went from far east from the Siberia through our town and also from Moscow also and going to Crimea and Caucasus. So, and every minute, every second, something going on, something happened on, the, on this uh, train station. So, um, and uh, we had a big uh, train depot, uh, like a tech depot, where uh, people maintain the trains and uh, repair them. And all the time, all day and all night, it was uh, sounds of workers, uh, like dispatchers, who spoke loudly all around the uh, railroad. And because the town was around that, the sound covered the whole city. And sometimes they cursed each other very loud on the whole city. Everybody knew what's going on in the, on the station. And uh, if if something happened to the uh, modern for that time uh, locomotives, they switch it to the steam trains, uh-huh. and the steam trains went uh, back and forth all the time, and that huge steam go went out of the pipes, and uh, the sound when it stopped, you know that kind of. Sh- Right. And uh, it was very loud, and they were very dirty, full of oil and grease, 
<laughs> to me it was unbelievable machines. I looked at them like some miracles. Yeah. How this big duty uh, piece of metal right. can move. Yeah, it's behemoth, right? Yeah. Mechanical behemoth. Yeah. Um, so when you were 14, you moved to Germany, right? Your father was in the, uh, the, the army, right? And he got stationed in Germany from uh, the small town. That must have been quite a culture shock to go from this little village, a train village, into, into European culture. In yeah. 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 It was the Eastern Bloc still. Yeah. 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 That, that's why uh, we got to move there, because Eastern Bloc, and uh, of course, after uh, living in, uh, in a small town, to move to the Germany, no matter where, to Europe. I didn't even expect that this place, these uh, uh, cities, would do s such a big impression on me. I knew about it, I read books about the Europe, so I k kind of knew where I'm going, but the one thing to know about it, another thing is to see, see yeah. by your own eyes. Right, experience it. Yeah. 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 Is that where you first got exposed to the Western culture, like rock and roll and... Uh, no, rock and roll, uh, again, uh, I said my family was very talented people. And um, uh, one of my uncles, he was a kind of radio um, engineering genius. Really? He was a very young guy. Like, he, at the time, he was uh, about 16, 17. Wow. He built uh, by himself special antenna to avoid the Russian noise machines. Wow. You know that, that uh, yeah. in the Soviet Union right. it was noise machines that yeah. they covered all the uh, frequencies from BBC, from right. United States, from, you know. Wow, so you bypassed that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, I was a kid, like four, five years old, and uh, in in our house all, always been music with Shock and Blue, Creedence, Beatles, mm -hmm. Rolling Stones. I grew up on that because it's non-stop. My, my uncle lived with us, uh -huh. so uh, or I lived with him. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was a young boy, uh -huh. and he played this music non-stop. Wow. So uh, that's how I got my love to, to rock and roll, to uh, hard rock, to Western music of of that time. Yeah. So uh, until the time I got to Germany, I already be, uh, was a huge fan mm -hmm. of, uh, of, this, music, yeah. of this music. Now yeah. you wanted to be a musician, I, I understand. Of course, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. If you, if you, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, yeah, if you listen this music, <laughs> you want to play like that. If you, you know, like Jimi Hendrix, like <laughs> you know, you like that, right? Richie Blackmore. <laughs> yeah, I, I was so impressed. And yeah, but uh, yeah, and uh, and I had the chance in in Germany because uh, in in the school we had a uh, we had instruments, and uh, from the beginning, I couldn't find a guys to to support me because nobody knew how to play um, and uh, honestly I, I was very amateur in in that i had a, just one year of uh, music school that i mm -hmm. dropped and uh, i said to my friends don't worry guys we'll we'll do somehow this <laughs> we'll get the band together somehow <laughs> yeah we've been very stupid but so stubborn <laughs> that's good <laughs> 
so you uh, maintained some of your artistic interests at the same time as you were playing, or were they very separate? I did the same time because my father was uh, he 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 was a good artist. He was really talented, and uh, actually, it was his dream to be an artist. Oh, and uh-huh. he uh, put a lot of effort and hopes in me. So uh, all my school years, especially uh, my teenager time, I, he put a lot of pressure on me. He put pressure on you. Really? Yes, he yeah. was yeah. very, I, I would say, even brutal. As far as your studies, or as far as your artistic pursuits, or both? Um, my studies. Your studies. Yeah, he he trained me. Huh. He trained me a lot, like, you know, like a hell. Uh-huh. Well, um, yeah, I guess you know. I've heard you say before that all of the experiences that you had as a child were very formative for the artist that you become. I guess that makes sense when you look at the discipline in your work. You know, you can't paint paintings like you make without having a lot of discipline, you know? Yeah. I, I'm always amazed at how artists can go from that beginning point when they have the idea and they start the canvas and it's exciting, and then the end when they finish and they sign the painting at the end, all that time between, so tedious and so technical and so boring and so you have to constantly be, you know, getting back, you know, it's work, right? It's not inspiration at that point, yeah? Yeah. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline. To but going through that kind of training, uh, I should explain it like that. Sometimes I, I want him to die. <laughs> and sometimes I want uh, die myself because it was so hard and so embarrassing because my my friends played soccer or uh, I wanted to go uh, to do rehearsal mm-hmm. to play music and my dad said no mm-hmm. until you finish this sketch or this uh, composition you, mm-hmm. you you cannot go mm-hmm. and with the tears with this anger I, <laughs> I said and finished what he said because the, I understood actually circumstances. Yeah. Is your father still alive? No, he, he passed away in 2011. Okay, so you got to see you become a successful artist though? Yes. Yeah. Uh, was he yes. still back overseas or was he in the States? No, he, uh, he died in Russia. In Russia. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. He must have been very proud of you to see that your company. Yes, yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah, he was. Great. I think he, he was very happy to see his uh, grandson. He, uh, he was happy to see my success. Right. Yeah. Right. That's wonderful. So in 1986, your family moved to Turkmenistan. That was a big formative part of your life as well, right? So tell us about that. How, how did that happen and what was that like for you? Uh, at the beginning, I thought it's some some kind of curse, <laughs> some kind of damnation for me. Like why, why I have to go there? My mom sent my father when I finished uh, uh, two years in army, and uh, she sent my father to me, like bring him home, bring him to the family and uh, just for a for a little just for a month and I went to to Turkmenistan and stuck there for eight years which I never regretted mm. it was great time it was great knowledge and uh, I would say wisdom mm-hmm. I got from the uh, this land mm-hmm. it's really it was very spiritual uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And you went to art school. 
yes, yeah. the art school in Ashgabat. And the, at the same time, I worked for uh, a couple of theaters. I started working with the theaters and the publishing houses, with the magazines, start doing illustrations. Uh, if I look back to uh, to these years when I was 20, 21, 22, I still don't understand how I managed to do all the things in one time. Mm-hmm. I was so busy with all the things, with, mm-hmm. with all the jobs and uh, uh, contacts and uh, meetings with friends, meetings with uh, some great people, mm-hmm. uh, writers, artists, uh, musicians. Right. What a wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks like I I slept like maybe three, four hours mm-hmm. a day wow. and then wake up and did something. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievably uh, active uh, active time. Fantastic. You, know, you wouldn't have assumed a place like Turkmenistan would have that kind of artistic milieu, you know, but that's where you... That's where you that's, that's where you were. That's interesting. Yeah. That uh, that's because I don't know what's going on there now, but Soviet Union had a tradition to send people who's not trustworthy for them far away, uh-huh. you know, and maybe in the Stalin's time in thirties they send them to Gulag to right. you know to to some cold places to Siberia. Later, in Khrushchev's time, in Brezhnev's time, they start sending them to some republics. Uh-huh. Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh-huh. and in, in, a, in a couple of decades, it started growing in new, new communities with unbelievable great people. Yeah, interesting. They send people from Ukraine, people right. from um, Azerbaijan, from Russia, and mostly it was uh, intelligent people, mm-hmm. smart, creative people. Yeah. And they produce kids right. with the same, same mentality. mentality. Yeah. It's fascinating, really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think our listeners probably don't realize the difference between an art school in the former Soviet Union and an art school in America. An art school in the Soviet Union, you had to learn art. You had to learn drawing, painting, sculpture, architecture, art history, aesthetics, I mean, everything. Right? Yeah. In America, you went to art school. When I went to art school in the 70s. You went to art school to find yourself, you know. All my teachers were conceptual artists, you know. At least they, they, they laughed at you if you wanted to learn a craft or a skill. Right. So that's, that's awesome that you went through that, that wonderful period of blossoming and, and really discovered so much. Now, I know that you had your first solo show at the Turkmenistan Museum. You were 24 years old. You had a museum show. That's astonishing. Tell us about that. It was a government museum. Um, uh, moreover, uh, this mu- uh, museum contained artworks of great artists. It's explainable because uh, when the World War II happened, Stalin decided to move factories to, to Ural Mountains, to Siberia, and the cultural values painting statues he, he moved from museums from Moscow and St. Petersburg he moved to republics oh I didn't know that to Ashgabat to Tashkent to Dushanbe these these places and when the war was over 
nobody called it back. Oh. So <laughs> it stood. So this museum was, it was filled, pretty right? impressive uh, with great. the Western artists of the, all yeah, time. Masters, yeah, yeah uh -huh. Russian artists, very good collection. So I was really proud that my work was exhibited in yeah, the, you, 24 sold yeah, the show. You yeah, know, your first show, you're in museum, you have a museum. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, can you imagine my my ambition? Yes, yes. <laughs> so tickled. I know. <laughs> and you told me the reason that uh, not the reason, but but one of the interesting things about the show, the, the curators had never seen anything like your art, right? So yes. what, what kind of art were you doing at that time? And what, how, what did you uh, have that impression? About my that? art was, uh, I would say, it was still the time when I developed myself as a surrealist and uh, with uh, with Dali on my flag mm -hmm. and uh, in my heart <laughs> it was kind of dark artworks uh, very provocative mm -hmm. very provocative I I wanted viewers to be shocked when they uh, when they saw my work shocked and remember me mm -hmm. why I did it because I was young mm -hmm. probably uh, many young artists doing the same yeah yeah ambitions and the uh, great desire to assault to attack the viewer and and actually it worked because I didn't hear a word of negative reaction negative critic on my work if I try to to explain it now I think they they were shocked too and they they just cannot find the right words to to <laughs> criticize and beat me. <laughs> never seen anything like it. I got a critics later. Right. In a couple of years when I started uh, doing uh, exhibitions in Moscow, right. in right. in Russia, but at that time was Everything fine. Everything, Michael. You great. <laughs> Do you still have any of those paintings? No, maybe a couple of them in uh, my mom's house, but most of them was sold. Oh, okay. Was sold, and uh, at that time was a huge wave of Im immigration. Already, it was the end of Gorbachev time. Uh -huh was the beginning of new era mm -hmm. so and it was a huge immigration to Israel to United States mm -hmm. to Europe so these people started buying my uh, my work and went to uh, okay. to other lands to wow. other countries with them wow. that's crazy so you went to Moscow it was uh, 94 and that's when you started really entering into your professional period of illustration right and working hard in that, that situation. And you tell a story that's fascinating about what you encountered in the publishing illustration business and how it provoked you to become a fine artist. So share that story with us. Uh, yeah, I, I was invited to a big uh, and famous publishing house in Moscow. Actually, the the building of that um, of the publishing house was right behind the Bolshoi Theater. You know that famous right. Moscow theater with the ballet and right. opera, like opera house. So right in the center of Moscow, and uh, I I was crazy about that offer, and I flew to Moscow, start working, and in the in a couple of months I start to realizing it's not mine because uh, it uh, it was a huge pressure from uh, all over. Uh, 
in in the company uh, before you complete your work and give it to the to the publishing got a big pressure from editor from writer from uh, from the commercial department and all the things and uh, it just I, I felt it, it just killing uh, my my creativity it's killing the whole idea of of artistic involvement to to the book because uh, illustrations they they doesn't have to be exactly what the writer thought not about his thoughts it's about the impression of some reader mm -hmm. who has a ability to draw mm -hmm. to in, to express yeah. his feelings right. you're interpreting <coughs> interpreting the work of, yes. of the writer but uh, most of time it was uh, like a jury <laughs> you have to go through <laughs> and after six seven months I I decided for myself that's that's not for me yeah I was too idealistic uh, about this job and mm -hmm. uh, I just had had no idea how how companies uh, like that works yeah the, the politics right I can imagine after spending a lot of time working on a project too and then having it dismissed after all that time put into it and energy be very frustrating yeah right? the, uh, the rules created in you know in the long life of Soviet Union with all ideology and you know propaganda things uh, I was somehow I was completely free of that so I I didn't follow uh, <laughs> that rules that's probably <laughs> I was I mean I I didn't work on on the ideological project there it was a couple of kids books the books for kids uh, even there it was something that went under that rules uh -huh. that was crazy and very hard to understand yeah, yeah. I can't imagine you know, being, <laughs> being a Westerner, you know, being in that situation. So you came to the U.S. It was '97, uh, and you came to New York first. Yes, uh -huh. it, it was just accidentally. My uh, my cousin found the contact with with his friend in New York, and he helped us with the with the tickets, with visas and stuff. So, and I went here to to stay. Mm -hmm. I. In my mind, I burned the bridge because I I knew what kind of situations go in in Russia, and uh, it was very very aggressive, very dangerous situation when it was a kind of mafia all around and people being killed just on the street, and uh, there was no chance to earn money, no jobs, it was bad, very bad. And I understood this is for years, and I don't want to live without hope. And America to me was like a big star that I had to reach. Mm -hmm. I understood something going on there, life is going, art life. And New York at that time, and I believe now, it's still a big cultural magnet that drag all people who was doing art in many fields, they still want to go to New York. They still want to be noticed in, in New York. If you survive in, in New York, you can survive anywhere <laughs> because it's a very tough city. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't know that <laughs> when I came. Well, that's what Frank Sinatra said. <laughs> <laughs> but for Frank but, Sinatra, yeah. it, it was easy because he was American. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I came with a, a very, very little English. Mm -hmm. I could read, I could write, but it was hard to understand and, and speak. Right. It took me like six months to to start mm -hmm. speaking. So, uh, and I went to the Brighton Beach with my cousin, and I had like 200 bucks in the pocket, and he had 200, 200 bucks in the pocket. So we got a room with another two guys living in that room. <laughs> and in the bedroom, there was a old lady who gave us that room really? for let's say it was a two hundred dollars each for month a month huh? so uh it's a uh, eight hundred okay, yeah yeah eight hundred per month wow we all paid, all paid. so i gave her <laughs> all money, all money? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the next day we uh we found a job wow my cousin and me uh just opened newspaper uh -huh. Uh, I found job in, in jewelry. He found job in uh, in the f uh, the furniture business. Mm -hmm. So and I went to work on the forty seventh street in the Diamond District. Mm -hmm. Got a, the engraving uh, and the gold stuff, mm -hmm. earrings. Again, your bracelet. talent, you know, was was uh, appropriate. Your skills got you the job, right? No, I I think I I had. I always had a, a kind of uh, strong and steady hands, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so to me it was not big deal to to, to learn to, to learn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was like a couple of days. Yeah. I I started doing the things. <laughs> yeah. And is that where you met Beatrice, your wife? No, no, oh. not uh, not at that uh, in this company. But she was in the jewelry business too. Yeah, in the business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, working with the, the engraver, I start feeling like my hands are shaking mm -hmm. because of machines, uh, and start looking for for the new job mm -hmm. uh, be, because it, I couldn't even hold a spoon. Really? Yeah, mm -hmm. it was shaked so much, and one of my friends called me that uh, another. Uh, another company looking for uh, artist mm. for the designer. Mm. I never did a design for jewelry, but I said yes. <laughs> of course, yeah, of I course can. I'm experienced. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the best. No problem. I'm the best. <laughs> and uh, that was a company where I found my future wife. Lovely, lovely woman that she is. Thank you. And you made uh, art at night? You'd go to work in the day and keep painting at night? Is that what happened? Yes. Uh, try to put enough art together, a collection together, to do your first, take works around and show yes. galleries? Yes, living in, in the room with four people. Yeah. I mean, with three people. Three guys. I was four. Um, I managed to create my space in, a, in the corner of the room, bought very cheap paints and brushes and canvases, and start working at night and on the weekends uh, when I had a, like about 10 uh, canvases, I went to start going to the galleries mm -hmm. and offer uh, what, uh, what I have. So, and of course I came from 
Russia. And uh, with all that negative experience, negative themes, I, I created the wrong themes, absolutely. Nobody wants to see it, nobody wants to uh, hang it on the walls, uh, no matter how clear and uh, yeah, technically uh, good detailed yeah. uh, was uh, my canvases, but nobody wants to see it. And there was a couple of completely embarrassing moment when art dealer or gallery owner start to teach me how to <laughs> how to make real paintings. I, I was so mad on him. But at the end he was right. I you know, I realized in a couple of months that I I have to to listen, not to argue, not not to be mad. But listen, what what people saying? Because I had no experience. Mm -hmm. uh, then I met a couple of guys, artists who lived in in Manhattan, who, who had some clue what's going on. And actually, in next year, we we made our group exhibition oh, with okay. them. Uh -huh. We worked completely different styles, mm -hmm. absolutely. But we've been again so so naive but aggressive with the gallery that the gallery owner said, "Okay, okay, guys, I'll I'll give you a space on the walls," and actually that was a great start point because we had a nice crowd on the opening, and um, I I consider it, it was a great result. At the end, this show went very successful for me because I think it was a great reward that one of my painting was stolen from the wall. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was so so desirable that somebody ripped it off, huh? I, I don't know what was the reason. I want to think like that. <laughs> well, it was a lot. Really wanted it. Yeah. Or that was it was worth a lot too. Obviously. Yeah. The, yeah. Someone took a risk. Yeah, to do that. That's crazy. So now, think about it. It's 20 years later, you know, and now you can paint whatever you want to paint, right? You're painting what you want to paint, right? Yes. You had to struggle for a while with, you know, trying to make compromises to be commercially, you know, accessible or whatever successful, but now you're in a position where people can't wait to buy whatever's in your imagination, whatever you want to paint. Yes. So let's let's talk about your work. Um, it's so unique and so uh, so excellent, you know, it's just such of such exquisite quality. Um, you don't consider yourself a surrealist, although you have a lot of surrealist influences, obviously. You consider yourself what? I consider myself as an absurdist. 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 How, I, would, how would you define the distinction between absurdism and surrealism? What's the difference? Surrealism, what I think, it's what I think was Paul Eloir wrote about it and Dali mm -hmm. uh, as well. Surrealism not looking for logic. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it looks for destroying logic. They showing you visibly logic picture inside you cannot find anything like in the dream you cannot find a clue so that's a surrealism the uh, absurdity is coming from another perspective it it comes to the picture that looks irrational but with irrational inside so uh, to me like 
uh, I I always go with with this example. We see things every day, and we so accustomed to them. Like for example, we see the chair, we see the table, the bed around us every day. We not even notice how they look. But if one day someone will turn the chair upside down, you will notice it. You you will have a question why this chair is upside down. That is that is the start point for uh, absurdism. Mm-hmm. It's it absolutely necessary to put things upside down to start talking about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eluard and, and some of the surrealist poets like Breton and those people, they talked about a lot of randomness and chance and, uh, you know, ir- irrationality, whereas in all of your works, everything is specific. Everything is perfectly planned out. There's no irrationality or chance in your painting at all. And I think that's an important uh, distinction. I know you're also influenced by writers, and absurdist writers like Lewis Carroll, for example. Uh, who are some of the other writers that have influenced you? The biggest uh, influence, of course, Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear. Edward Lear. Uh-huh. Yeah. With his uh, beautiful uh, Book of Nonsense and uh, many other works. He was unbelievable, uh, great and creative. Uh-huh. Um, I know you also say that when you you make your paintings, you have a very specific idea behind them, and they're initially the viewer is invited into the painting through the title. The title is a very important point of entry to the viewer into your works, and you also want the viewer to finish the painting in their own way, right? So your paintings are kind of like invitations to come into this experience and and bring their own perspective. Talk about that for a little bit. I think it's such a fascinating concept. Uh, first, about the concept that I really appreciate when viewer has his own explanation and, and interpretation of my work. That actually, I feel, I've, I feel myself like I reached the goal because I provoke the viewer to talk, to think, to be imaginative, to be creative. And the second point, that my work starting with, with the letters and ending with the letters. It, what, what do you mean? i writing down my ideas. Oh. I'm not sketching them uh-huh. first. You write them. Oh, when the idea yeah. is coming, I write a few sentences, mm-hmm. sometimes just a few words, to just nail. nail it to the paper (laughs) and when I finish the painting the title Mm -hmm. sometimes I have it at the beginning Mm -hmm. but most of time I have it at the end and again uh, I I finish with the word and sometimes it's so so hard to, to, to make that key to leave that key as a title to give it to the viewer to understand my work. And many times it happened when the painting is done, painting is varnished, and it's standing on the easel, and I have no idea how to name it. (laughs) Well, some of your titles are very uh, unusual, that's for sure. You know, we have a piece called the discord of analogy for example that's a really intriguing title. yes it's kind of like lots of examples oxymoron, yeah. yeah there's lots of titles like that they're really intriguing they're they're perplexing a lot of them they really you know they, they pique your curiosity when you just hear the title of the painting 
Um, that's really interesting. Why do you think some people are scared when they look at your work? It frightens them. I, I, I can't imagine, I can actually understand how people can be scared because, uh, for example, when people don't understand what's going on, their reaction is most of the time aggression. They want to attack. They don't understand. They feel themselves embarrassed. And they want to attack. They want to, to tell me that, no, I'm not as stupid as you think. But I never thought they're stupid. Never thought. But, but they insist on that. I even had in New York, I had a, a, a made exhibition in Waldorf Astoria in New York. And a woman approached me with a, with a very scandalous voice, like saying, you cannot do that. <laughs> you cannot do that. It's, uh, it's absolutely uh, old style. You have no right to do that. The woman about? was so hysterical. And uh, I started saying, like, come down, come down, explain me what's new, what I missed yeah. in my life. <laughs> and she started naming some names of artists. I had no idea who, who, who they are. Uh, but again, she didn't accept what I offered, uh -huh. and instead of just walk away with with the piece, she decided to to attack me. And I had uh, situations like that many times. So when people scared, it's the most <laughs> I I would say peaceful reaction <laughs> of peaceful all reaction. of all I saw in my life. <laughs> yeah, I would have. To think that that would be a great affirmation of your work, though, that you could create those kinds of impressions in people, you know, those kinds of reactions. You know, you really, you're doing something that's vital, you know, something that's got a real, a real electricity to it, real, you know, uh, power to it. Last year, uh, yeah, it was last year, I did a show in, in Florida, and uh, I'm not bragging about that. I, I was shocked, too. One woman uh, came to one of my works, stand in front of, stood in front of the work a couple of minutes, and then she fell down. <gasps> she fainted? Fainted on the back. At, at the end, everything was all right, and I started asking, what, what happened to you? And she said, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work, I followed you everywhere, Facebook and Instagram and stuff, and I always wanted to see your originals. Oh. And she wow. went, came closer <laughs> to original, and probably she was, I don't know, so impressed, so emotional, mm -hmm. yeah. and something happened to her. That's incredible. What is that incredible story? Wow. Um, you love to talk about your paintings, and when you present your paintings, you know, to to our our guests and our, our collectors at our VIP events, like we did on this event together, we had you speak about each piece. You know, we had twenty one paintings, and we talked about every single painting. You came up and talked about each one, and it was so intriguing to hear your own interpretation. I know that you have, uh, you know. Uh, you invite the viewer to bring in their own interpretation, but at the same time, you know, you have a very clear narrative about what you're saying in your work. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to look at one of your paintings 
and have you kind of go through the same process and describe the painting and what's happening in the painting. So we can, even though our listeners can't hear it, at least we can kind of describe it a little bit and, and give them an idea of what, what you know, uh, your thought process in creating these paintings. So I just picked this one randomly because it's always intrigued me. And this is a painting called Goldfish. Goldfish Rising, yeah. Yeah. And it's called Goldfish Rising, yeah. yeah. And so we're looking at a field, a, a landscape, and it looks like a, some sort of farm field. I'll just describe it first the way I'm seeing it, and then you can amplify it. And there's a, a group of men, and they're all dressed in sort of 18th century uh, costumes. They look like something out of a, you know, a Mozart movie or something like that, yeah. right? that period. And they're in this field, and some of them are picking things in the, the bottom left, and there's two gentlemen standing in the, in the bottom right, very closer to the front of the picture plane. And then in the distance, there's a group of, of men dressed the same way, and they're holding like a kite strings of this giant fish that's floating in the sky, this magnificent giant fish which is all covered in, in coins, it looks like, you know, gold, maybe gold coins or something, because yeah. he's a goldfish, right? And it's beautifully painted with this wonderful, you know, articulate technique that you have. The sky is exquisite, it's a gorgeous landscape, the space is perfectly, uh, you know, articulated, the volume, the plastic space of the painting. The costumes are wonderful. I know that you worked for a while in the theater, uh, and you developed an interest in costume design, and, and one of the aspects of your paintings is so interesting are the costumes you come up with. They're so cool, and people just love the love the, that part of the work, the exotic costumes. So now, that's my best description of the painting. I hope some <laughs> of our viewers can visualize this, and you certainly can go on the Park West website and probably see see the image if if our viewers wanted to do that. Um, so now, I, you take us through your your uh, interpretation of the painting. The idea of of the painting came to me when IT uh, industry or dot-com uh, happened. In New York, a lot of people lost their jobs. Oh, okay. So, uh, and all news uh, sources start talking about that, that bubble, that oh. they created a golden bubble uh, of the uh, new internet right, right. technologies and because of you know, all the owners and managers were so irresponsible for uh, for people who worked for them, uh, which was true, and people was not responsible for themselves too, right. and uh, it, it, it was... It was the, the dot-com bubble, right? Yeah, yeah. and the news uh, about that was from even from the irons, you know, from from the kettles. So I start thinking about that, and uh, one day I just plugged the CD, I start working uh, on something, and the CD was a Sting, uh, his uh, Field of Gold. Mm -hmm. uh, Love that concert, mm -hmm. my favorite. And I start listening to the lyrics, start listening to the music. And somehow I, I started seeing that big fish floating like a big golden zeppelin <laughs> in the air. And the people who seeking for the gold and the, uh, for rational things, trying to catch it and pull it down on the earth. To, to destroy it. So the, uh, building the, such a great thing as a golden fish and let it float in the air and then drag it to, to down to earth and, and destroy it, that was the whole idea of, the, uh, of that uh, dot-com crisis. Right. So to me it was, uh, for this second, was so obvious. Uh -huh. It was a pure absurd. 
of the situation. Right. It's, it was completely obvious, probably from the beginning, and many people criticized that. But first I saw big fish and uh, made of gold and uh, people, the small, teeny, tiny uh, human figures on the, on the ground, uh, dragging it down. And then I made this uh, kind of field which is gold fields. There are people that are just picking the gold. Picking from, gold from the field. Uh, huh? Yeah, yeah. From, from the field. Like berries, like strawberries yeah. or something. Uh -huh. Yeah. And these the gentlemen in the foreground. And these gentlemen on the lower right side, they are probably the two people who who understand what's going on. Who maybe who created that situation <laughs> and one of uh, uh, one of them trying to to count because on the left hand he has uh, coins uh -huh, he's he uh, trying to, to to show him probably on the numbers what was uh, uh, thought <laughs> how he how he thought it must be and this guy looking at that uh, uh, fish far away thinking now <laughs> it doesn't work that way <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's really intriguing. I love it. Uh, it. It just demonstrates so clearly about how you create these situations for the viewer to kind of take in this amazing scene, you know, this incredible, as I use the word articulate, this articulated scene where everything is just perfectly painted. And then you amplify it with this story that just takes it in a whole different direction. You know, it's just so, so much fun to, to do that. I know that you write a lot about your, your art, and you've done several books, and in your books you'll have images and your writings about them as well, so I would certainly encourage our listeners to... With the help, to, uh, with yeah, the help, of course. Yeah, yeah with help. Well, um, I would encourage our listeners to, uh, you know, to take a look at some of the books that you've published and, and your writings about your pieces. Um, what I'd like to do is just ask you a couple of um, comments on particular artists. Let me just uh, you know name an artist and then just kind of get your thoughts on that artist and what that artist has meant to your work and how you feel about that artist. And let's start with the obvious one, which is Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali was indeed my father of my art. He he was uh, he had a big big influence on me because he just blew my brain. When did you first see his work? First time I saw his work when I was 15. Okay. And yeah, yeah, yeah uh, it was in Germany. I still didn't understand what to do with that, being under uh, big teaching pressure mm -hmm. of my father. <laughs> did your father see his work too? <laughs> yeah. What did you think? Yeah. He, he actually liked it. <laughs> he actually liked it, but uh, he had a goal to to make me ready for going to, to fine art school. Right. And uh, that was on, on, on the first place for him and was a huge pressure at that time. But Dali mutated through the years. Uh, his image to me, it, he's still on the highest pedestal in ranks of my, my heroes. But it's mutated. Um, I'm not looking uh, at Dali now as I looked at him when I was 15, of course. Mm -hmm. Now I understand how he came up with this idea and that idea, uh, how he created this painting and what kind of tricks he used. To me, now it's very obvious, but at that time it was a magic. At that time it was I have no idea how they did it. I have to find out. Interesting. Rene Magritte. 
Genem agreed. I found him in nine, uh, 1992, I believe. And I know it was a shame because I, I should find him early. And uh, this guy I loved from the first glance. Uh, there was a small thin book uh, with his uh, with the images of his work. And as more I look at them without explanation, as more I just accepted his philosophy, accepted his way of thinking. That's actually he's not surrealist. Mm-hmm. He's more absurdist mm-hmm. than than surrealist because he logically built that chaos, logically built the, this uh, absurd. Right. Do you know the work of Max Ernst? Yes, never. Uh, Not much of an never been a huge fan. Or uh, the photographer Man Ray. Yes, the Man Ray is genius. Yeah. I believe genius, and uh, I think uh, anyone who's in photography and uh, cinematograph in fine art should look at him, and there's tons of ideas. Yeah. Tons. Yeah. As far as classical painters go, uh, not, you know, surrealists or absurdists, who have had the greatest influence on you? Different years was different artists, mm-hmm. and uh, growing mostly on the... Um, and the influence of uh, Russian masters of 19th century, mm-hmm. let's say, mostly. So, so can you share some names? Uh, it was uh, Brilov, Karl Brilov, Fedotov, Ivanov, Repin, Serov. It's a lot of good artists, mm-hmm. uh, unbelievably great skills. Um, Kramskoy, uh, indeed. And uh, then my, especially when I moved to uh, to Germany, I start narrowing my my horizons and uh, start seeing the uh, the works of Rubens and uh, Velázquez and uh, Vermeer. Um, I saw Raphael, sixties, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Madonna. Yeah. in Dresden uh, gallery and uh, but from the whole Dresden gallery was uh, uh, who really hooked me who really shocked me and I still that my favorite favorite painting of all time this is Vermeer the girl reading the letter it's in the Dresden gallery mm-hmm. I made a copy Oh, you did? Of this painting, okay. and I have it in my bedroom. Really? Every day, I yeah. every morning I waking up, <laughs> I see this this painting. I I just stole it. <laughs> Mentally stole it from Vermeer. <laughs> but you learned a lot, right? Oh yeah. What did, What did you take from Vermeer that you, that you applies to your work today? I um, especially my father. He always criticized me for avoiding the dynamic, avoiding uh, movement. Uh, in in the paintings in in my works, he said, "No, uh, you have to do some uh, something that run out the the canvas, mm-hmm. more dynamism." Yeah, yeah. And when I saw Vermeer, when I start studying him, start reading about him, and I noticed one thing: 
Vermeer did a great example of dynamic emptiness. That's an interesting term. And I found it, it's kind of magic in that, that the composition is frozen, but you know what happened after, or you know what happened before. Mm -hmm. It's not even a photography mm -hmm. that just you stop the moment. Mm -hmm. It's some trick with probably in the composition, in the faces, in colors, in shadows. So it's a combination of things that made Vermeer's work magical. Many artists worked in similar genre. Like, for example, Gabriel Metzu, Gerard Terborg, Peter de Hooch, right? Right. They, they, they even had a very similar rooms right. and the composition interiors, yeah. in, interiors. Yes. but no one did this kind of magic what, uh -huh. what Vermeer did wow. Wow. and I still learning everywhere I go uh, if, if I know Vermeer is there first I go there <laughs> go this year it. I was in Vienna uh -huh. and the artist in his studio uh -huh. when Vermeer said to the viewer back right he's back yeah I went right there, <laughs> and I spent like 40 minutes <laughs> standing, put my nose to the, to the wood. Yep. Wow. Well, that will certainly alter the way in which I look at your paintings now, having that insight. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will be uh, equally intrigued by that, that concept as well. That's a beautiful thing. Well, Michael, thanks so much for being with us and, and sharing time with us uh, today. Uh, what a wonderful, intriguing conversation. And um, I've been really looking forward to this session for a long time. I wanted to get you here and, and get uh, a good recording of you know your, your direction, where you've been, where you're going, and your insights into your truly extraordinary artwork. If you're not familiar with Michael Cheval's work, uh, you can, of course, visit the Parkwest website, parkwestgallery.com, and see a, a, a selection uh, on display there, and also you have your own website, right? Which is chevalfineart.com. Under construction now. Chevalfineart.com. Well, thanks again, my friend. Thank you. It was a pleasure seeing you. The same here. Thank you for listening to Park West Gallery's Behind the Artist. To learn more about Park West Gallery's family of artists, visit us online at parkwestgallery.com or follow us on social media. You can subscribe to Behind the Artist on your favourite podcast app and be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes.